Good afternoon. When you're a Royals fan, you become well acquainted with disappointment. And uh, what I'm about to describe, I'm gathering, has not worked in their clubhouse. But sometimes when a sports team is not having success, the coach may bring them all in and say, okay, if we are going to have, if we're going to have success, we're going to have to get back to the basics. And sometimes it does as well as the church to do that, to get back to the basics. You know, one of my children said in my hearing, I, something along these lines within the past few years, something about, you know, we've not heard the subject of modesty taught. And I thought to myself, I've taught on modesty a whole bunch. And then it occurred to me, it had been something like 15 years ago since I had done that. And, you know, that's not terribly long in my life anymore, but that's almost an entire lifetime for a number of you here. And so we have to remind ourselves that we've got to go back and go through these things so that all of us are acquainted with them. And if we're not careful, it's possible to fail as a church in the respect that John was talking yesterday of passing it on to the next generation. So I want to talk about some basics today. And I'm going to put some scriptures up here on the board, and we're just going to kind of go through these scriptures one by one, and as we do, build a biblical picture of the church. So we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus and the apostles were in Caesarea, Philippi, and... Jesus asked the apostles, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they had various answers. Well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave his famous answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers here in Matthew chapter 16. Make sure I'm turning to that as well as you. You've chosen to. Verse 17, Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And verse 18 particularly is the verse of interest. And I also say to you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So I'm going to ask a very basic question. And this is going to be somewhat interactive this afternoon. Who built the church? Jesus Christ built the church. And whose church is it? Yeah. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He built it. Now, we may have some people in this room who have built some houses themselves, and you may have built a house that was going to belong to someone else. Building something doesn't automatically make it yours. So Jesus built the church, but he says, it's my church. Well, what makes it? His church. Acts chapter 20. In this case, of course, the fact that he is God in the flesh, God now sitting at the right hand of God, the fact that he built it gives him ownership. But there's another reason. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which what? He purchased with, all right, so, you know, there's a whole sermon there, isn't there? 
When we start tampering with the church, when people tamper with the church, what are they doing? They are tampering with something, number one, that does not belong to them. And number two, something that was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. How dare any man tamper with the church of God? It belongs to Jesus. He built it. He bought it. It's his. And according to Ephesians 5.23, there's another basic fact about the church that we always want to remember. Ephesians 5.23, someone might want to turn there. Under other circumstances, I might ask someone to read it out loud, but I know these are being recorded, so I'll go ahead and read it. Ephesians 5.23, Paul says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. He is the what of the church there in the middle of the verse? The husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is what? Head of the church. So he built it. He bought it. It belongs to him. He is its head. And of course, the church is Jesus's. Yes, it is his body. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. The father put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. It's also taught in Colossians 1, 24. All right. So we've got some basics, right? Jesus built the church. He bought the church. It belongs to him. The church, he is, he is the head of the church. The church is his body. And according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, as well as Romans 12, 4 and 5, how many bodies does Jesus have? He has one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So, The church is Jesus' body. He has one body. So consequently, he has how many churches? One. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, this sounds like a lesson I heard back in 1953. And that's kind of the sort of thing I'm talking about. Some of these things maybe haven't been revisited. I I can say that. I feel like in my my lifetime, I have seen where some of these things were, were not visited as they should have been. So there is one church. The Bible teaches this. There is one church. Now, we meet people sometimes. They might say, uh, well, you know, I can go out in the woods and I can worship God. And you can. You can worship God in the woods. And they say, I don't need organized religion. I don't need church. I don't need the church. Ephesians 5.23, which I already cited, we want to notice something else that it says. The husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And then how's the verse end? He, that is Jesus, he is the what? Savior of the the body. And the body is the church. So is there, who's Jesus going to save? He's going to save the church. Is there promise of salvation outside the church? No. So we can't say, well, here's salvation and here's the church. And yeah, we all need salvation, but maybe just some of us need the church. No, the two are mutually inclusive. Jesus is going to save the church. Why well, I better make sure I'm in it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, and then I'll move up to another column. We're just, these are basics. We're just laying a foundation here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul makes this statement, for by one spirit, 
we were all baptized into one body. So the body is the church. There is this one church which Jesus is going to save. And I enter that church. I enter that body when? When I'm baptized. So many, so many people we know. Yes, I believe there needs to be salvation. I believe there's a, the church is part of your life, but I don't think baptism has anything to do with your relationship with the universal church of God. I don't think baptism has anything to do with salvation. But here, the church, where, where, which comprises those who are saved. No, the church doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you, but he saves you in conjunction with the church. It's the church he will save. And you enter into the church, the scripture says, when you're baptized. Now, getting dunked without belief, that's not going to do you any good. Getting dunked without repentance isn't going to do you any good. There must be faith. There must be repentance. There must be confession. There must be a readiness to stand with the Lord through thin and through thick. But baptism is that moment, the moment of demarcation, the line of demarcation, where we transfer from sinner to saint, where we go from being outside the church to in the church. Let's switch gears now. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul tells us something about the nature of the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul had had to leave Ephesus because of trouble in town. He hoped to return, but in his absence, Timothy was still there working with the congregation. A lot of responsibility was on his shoulders. So this letter was written to help Timothy take care of business in Paul's absence. Starting in verse 14, Paul says, <clears throat> verse Timothy 3, 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how to, you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the what? The pillar and ground of the truth. Now, what's a pillar do? Upholds, it supports, right? And what's the ground do? It upholds the pillar. Some translations will say foundation instead of ground. Some will say buttress. But all those things have something in common. The pillar, the ground, the foundation, the buttress. It's all about supporting, upholding. So according to Paul, according to the word of God, what what is it that the church does? It upholds what? The truth. It upholds the truth for sinner and saved alike to behold and believe. Now, Where's the truth found? Well, we know what the Bible says about that. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. <clears throat> so, what's the Bible teaching us? The church upholds the word of God. That's what the church does. Notice, by the way, Paul does not say the church should uphold the word of God. The church upholds the word of God. You, where you do not have the church, the truth being upheld, you do not have the church. And truth is integral to the identity of the church. This is not what the church should do, although that's true. It's not only. It's what the church does. The church upholds the truth. Now, how does it do that? I'm looking for input. How does the church uphold the truth? you got to know it. So, of course, the truth is the word of God. So we're going to have to go to Scripture and we're going to have to accurately interpret it. But will that alone, if you've got a group of people here who accurately interpret Scripture, is that, is that upholding the truth? It's getting, you got to what? you got to live it. you got to practice it. 
And we might, along with the practicing and knowing, we might also say teaching it. So when the church accurately interprets the Word of God, accurately teaches the Word of God, accurately practices the Word of God, in this way the church upholds the Word of God. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 40 through 42. Peter has just preached to the Jews assembled there in uh, Jerusalem. We referenced it yesterday. I think it was referenced today once by Wade, if my memory is serving me correctly. Starting in verse 40. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were what? All right. And so per 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we've got a bunch of baptized people now, about 3,000. So therefore, we have about 3,000 people who now make up the church. All right. So what's the church do? The church has just started. God doesn't do things accidentally or arbitrarily. What's the first thing he's going to tell us about the church? What's the first thing that the God of the universe is going to tell us about the church right after it started? Verse 31 then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and about and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they, the church, the first thing we're told, they continued steadfastly, meaning they continued in, they persevered, they held fast to what? The apostles' doctrine. Doctrine is this old-fashioned word. What's it mean? Teaching. Teaching. That's literally what it means. Some of you may have translations that say that. So the church, which upholds the word of God, as soon as it started, the first thing we're told is they hold fast to the to the apostles' doctrine. You say, well, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I grew up in the church or I was raised around the church. That's exactly what I expected to hear. But let's remember, we're talking about basics today. So why is it so important to hold fast to the apostles' doctrine? You know, why didn't it say, well, they held fast to Brother So-and-so's doctrine? You know, um, there may have been some good, you may have had a number of rabbis who've come into the Lord, they already know quite a bit. How come it doesn't say the hell fast to their doctrine? <clears throat> there was a man who used to teach among us, among the churches, and uh, he began to teach false things. He's no longer among us. And I was on his Facebook page, Oh, it's probably been like 10 years ago. And uh, not long after the transition had, the, well, the transition had become apparent. It's been more than 10 years ago, I think. We're probably closer to 15. Some of you may have seen the picture. There was a bust, you know, statuette. This up of a rabbi. This man had his arm around the rabbi. What his picture taken? His arm around the rabbi. I thought that spoke volumes. Let's read Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where we started, Jesus said he was going to build his church. Matthew 16, 19, he has something else very important to say to Peter. To the apostle Peter. Matthew 16, 19. And I will give you, singular, so to you, Peter, 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Those terms bind and loose, those are terms of jurisprudence. Those are legal terms in the first century. And they were used, maybe not only legal terms, but they were used in legality of the first century among the Jews to speak to to, uh, prohibiting and permitting. So if something was bound, it was prohibited. If it was loosed, it was permitted. So what Jesus is saying to Peter, he says, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind, whatever you prohibit on earth, it will be prohibited in heaven. And whatever you loose, whatever you permit on earth, it will be permitted in heaven. That's really an amazing statement. Some translations note, or the NAS, I think we have a footnote that points out that it could be rendered, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. But the point of the passage is this, and I'll put it in the form of a question. Did Jesus say to Peter that Peter's words, when he was speaking as an apostle, when he was giving commands, that his words had the authorization of heaven? Did he say that his words were authorized by heaven? Isn't that what he seems to be saying? Right? That, that's pretty straightforward. And we have some religious friends that go, yeah, Peter, he was the first pope. That's exactly what we would expect to be said to the first pope. Of course, we go to chapter 18, Matthew 18, 18. Jesus is talking to all of the apostles. Verse 1 reveals that. And to all the apostles, Matthew 18, 18, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, plural in the Greek, I say to you, whatever you all, if we're from Texas, that's how we say it, right? Y'all, that's what's being indicated here. Whatever you all bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So yes, Jesus told Peter, Peter, when you as apostle speak, this is what must be done. This can't be done. You have the authority of heaven. But it wasn't just Peter, was it? It was all the apostles. Was a promise like that ever made to a non-apostle. That's my knowledge. This is what Jesus said to these men. Your words will have the authority of heaven. But Jesus said something else. Which is basic, but it's profound at the same time. In John 16, in John 16, 13 through 15, I know I've kind of been dragging some of these out, so I'll try to work through this one a little more quickly, but it's... This is really good, what Jesus revealed to us here. Of course, it's good, but it just, it's, I, it's, it's one of those things that's obvious, and yet, I think at least for me, it was one of those obvious things I kind of had to think through and like, oh, 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 this is, this is very significant. Look what Jesus tells the apostles here in John 16, beginning in verse 13. He says, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, That's going to happen, of course, after the Jesus ascends into heaven. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all what? All right. So what's the church do? It upholds the truth. And what was revealed to the apostles? Truth. All right. So that makes perfect sense. No wonder the church was continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Jesus isn't done. Verse 14, he says of the spirit, he will glorify who? He's going to glorify me. The Spirit's going to glorify 
son. Well, how's he going to do that? For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15, all things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of what is mine and declare to you. So here it is. Did Jesus promise the apostles that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth? Yes, we've already established that. But here's the next question. Did Jesus promise that what the Holy Spirit revealed to the apostles would actually be from Jesus? Didn't he just say that? The apostles had the truth, and they, did, they got that truth from the Spirit. You think, okay, well, yeah, they got the truth from the Spirit. But where did the Spirit get the truth that he gave the apostles? Jesus, and it's so important, Jesus said it twice. Did you notice that? Verse 14, he said it, and he says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell you again. Everything the Father has, he has given to me, because Jesus is going to be, have heaven authority over in all authority in heaven and on earth. And what I have, I'm going to give to the Spirit. So, when the apostles receive all truth from the Holy Spirit, what they're actually getting is word, the words of Jesus, right? And so when the apostles speak with the authority of heaven, Whose words were they actually speaking? Jesus' words. When Jesus walked the earth, he spoke verbally with his own mouth. When he ascended into heaven, he arranged things so that he continued to speak vicariously through the mouths of the apostles. You know, in the first century, in Jewish law, they had a man called, or an individual called the Shaliach. That was the Hebrew equivalent of an apostle. And you know what an apostle was to them in the legal system? If you, we have what's called power of attorney today in the United States. If you gave authority to a child or someone to operate with your authority, legally that person was an apostle. What, what, what have we always said? I hate to ask it like that, but it's true. I mean, what does apostle mean? One cent, one cent. Well, you know that's true, but that's incomplete. I can say to one of my children, take the trash out. Is, is she now an apostle? I can say, uh, would you go to the shed and get a hammer and bring it back to me? Good luck finding it in my shed. But go to the shed and get a hammer and bring it back to me. I just sent my child. Is my child now an apostle? No. In fact, if I send my child, I say, uh, you know, this next example wouldn't work. But if I say to one of my children, one of my older children, go tell so-and-so to uh, do whatever the job is, and if they don't do it, um, you have the authority to, uh, you know, dad said, I, I can, you know, this is not a perfect example, but you, know, you kind of know where I'm going here, all right? I'm giving them authority. I'm giving them dad's authority, however wise or unwise that may be. <laughs> One time uh, when I was much younger and with a younger Amber, we were going to be going out to do something and, you know, Rick had signed off on it, but I don't know, maybe he was having second thoughts and he told us, he goes, use your own judgment such as it is. <laughs> I didn't quite fully appreciate that until years later. Oh, yeah. Those were words laden with meaning. An apostle is not only one who sent, he or she, well, an apostle is one sent by someone with authority, with that person's authority. When the apostles speak, you ever met people who are like, well, the words of Jesus are up here and then the words of the apostles are down here? 
Jesus doesn't allow for that. Jesus is saying, when you speak, you will be speaking my words. What you speak by inspiration, you spirit will have gotten from me. You speak with the authority of heaven, just like I do. Uh, the apostles' words are not inferior to Jesus' words. They are Jesus' words. 1 Corinthians 14, 37, what did the apostle Paul say? He just gave those commands and those instructions that Wade was talking about this morning. He knows there might be some people who question it. He says, if anyone among you thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul was an apostle, and he spoke the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, that he, uh, Jesus Christ, spoke in him. All right, we're going to switch gears a third and final time. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, words mean things. So who's the we? Who's the we? You know, John uses this pronoun we throughout the book. Who's the we? Well, sometimes the we is all Christians. You go over to chapter 5, look at verse 14, for example. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. That's all Christians. So are all Christians the ones about whom John is speaking here in 1 John 4, 6? It can't be. At the risk of being, getting down in the weeds, let's read verses 4, 5, and 6. And I want you to notice first word in each verse. First John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he is that he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us by this. We know the spirit of truth and spirit of error. What did you notice about the word at the beginning of each verse? It's a different pronoun. The first pronoun, what, in verse 4 is what? You. So you to whom I'm writing. The Christians to whom John was writing, you're of God, little children, and have overcome them. Third person, them, these false teachers. And then he says in verse 5, they are of the world, the false teachers. So the ones you overcame, they're of the world. So there's you, and there's they. And then on the heels of that, he says, we. Well, the we doesn't include the they, and the we doesn't include the you. So who's the we? Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now, you and I wouldn't have written it like that. This was written 1,900 years ago in a different language, in a different culture. John was writing in Greek and he himself was Hebrew. We wouldn't have worded it like that. So we can be a little, look at that. What are you talking about? Well, let's think about it for just a moment. This is the same man who wrote John 1.1. And John 1.1 begins with what? In the beginning was the 
Okay, same apostle says that which was from the beginning. Well, that kind of sounds like how he referred to Jesus. And then he says, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon. Not only did we see him, we had opportunity to gaze upon him, watch him carefully, and our hands have... Luke 24, 39, Jesus said, handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. And who did he say that to? The apostles. So 1 John 4, 6, who's the we? It's the apostles. And what does John say? Again, for the third time, I'll read it. We, that is we apostles, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So let me ask you, what's the word hear mean, by the way? I mean, those of us who parent our children here and then our children here, right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what's meant by the word hear? Hear and obey. You take it in, you accept it, you put it into practice. So if we do not hear, That is, if we do not listen to and accept what the apostles have to say, according to the word of God, do we know God? If we do not listen to and accept what the apostles have to say, do we know God? No. This is a son of thunder. He speaks frankly and clearly. If you don't listen and obey the apostles, you're not of God. So. Must the church today uphold the word of God and hear the apostles' teachings, which are actually Jesus' teachings, in order to be pleasing to God? Of course, the answer to that is yes. So we've been talking in principles and general ideas. We are going to close with a much shorter section on the local church. We've been talking about the universal church and its qualities and its nature and its foundation. But let's bring it down now to the brass tacks level. Because there's lots of churches to go to. Many of you in this room have experience being a part of growing up among other churches. Some of you now may be visiting some other churches. Maybe you're entertaining the idea of switching churches. Maybe you wonder, what is it with these Church of Christ people? They just think, well, the Church of Christ is different and special. No, there's plenty of good people in these other churches. Well, there certainly are plenty of good people in the other churches. This is not about good people. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. John Romans 9, 4 calls Jesus the eternally blessed God. When Jesus presented Himself to Thomas and Thomas realized that it was in fact the risen Lord, what did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. So you ever get a knock at the door? We moved into a new neighborhood nine years ago, and we've been visited by the people three times. I've had at least studies with, I don't know, maybe four, three, four different ones. I think our house is labeled now because they don't come to the door anymore. But um, they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses, but that's what they call themselves. And... They might say to you, I've had them say this to me, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you hear that and you think, oh, all right, good, yeah, yeah, we're on the same page. Satan is so sly. 
use same words, give them different definitions. If you ask them a little bit more, they will inform you that by son of God, they mean, well, God created Jesus. Jesus is actually Mark the or Michael the archangel operating under a different name. The Jesus is, yeah, sure, the Bible calls him mighty God, but he's not almighty God. He's not really God. He was made by God. Are the witnesses hearing the apostles? The apostle John said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In 2 John verse 9, John said, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. There's been a lot of discussion over the years. What's included in the doctrine of Christ? And I'm not even 100% sure. But it was certainly seen that who Jesus is would be of the doctrine of Christ. The apostle said in John 1.1 that Jesus Christ is God. The apostle Paul said Jesus is the eternally blessed God. And if you don't follow the apostles, you're not of God. And if you don't accept the doctrine of Christ, you're not accepted by God. So when these people come to our door, as, as sincere as they may be, and as wonderful as they may be as friends, I'm going to be really politically incorrect. But we're talking about truth today. Truth. Based on what the Bible reveals to us are the Jehovah's Witnesses, and this is only one example, are the Jehovah's Witnesses of God. No. It's okay to judge. In fact, show me somebody who doesn't. You're judging me. You shouldn't be judging me. Aren't you judging me for judging you? I mean, really? Are they not judging you? You cannot live life without judging. Jesus, we were told in the scriptures to make wise judgments. But just don't judge according to appearance. Don't judge superficially. Judge according to truth. So what's the truth say? What's the word of God say? Let's look at a couple more examples. I'm just going to cite some passages you're already familiar with. We won't take time to read them. (coughs) Acts chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Philip's with the eunuch, and he preaches Jesus to him. And clearly it includes baptism, even though it doesn't strictly say it, because as soon as he preaches Jesus to him, the eunuch says, well, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch affirmed his belief. And then what did Philip and the eunuch do? They both get down in the water. They both get down in the water and they both come up out of the water. Why did John the Baptist baptize in Ainan near Salim? What's John tell us? Because there was much water there. What's the word baptism? Baptisma in the Greek mean? It means immersion. So we've got the meaning of the Greek word. We've got the fact that baptism is called a burial. We've got the examples where they both go down in the water. It's a sprinkling report. We don't need to be getting, everybody doesn't need to be getting down into the water. So it's, it's clearly a burial. It's clearly an immersion. If a local church today, regardless of what name they have on the front, teaches that baptism is not an immersion, or that baptism can be performed however a person prefers, sprinkling, pouring, whatever, if they're teaching that, is that church upholding the word of God and hearing the apostles' teachings? Is that church of God? It can't be. This isn't us being pompous. Oh, we've got the truth and you don't. If you've got an attitude like that, you need to deal with that. 
Because that doesn't, that makes you, God resists the proud. Acts 2.38, here were people who clearly believed, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's a question out of faith. They were pricked in the heart, the Bible says, they've been convicted, what must we do? They're, they believe, they're ready to act, but they're not saved. They say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, number one, repent. So just because you believe, you don't automatically repent. We've got some religious friends who say those two go to, those two happen automatically together. They do not. Saul believed, but he didn't repent. These people believed, but they didn't, they needed to yet repent. Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for, you know the verse, remission of sins. Romans 6 3 says, baptism is what brings us into Christ. Galatians 3 27 says the same thing. 1 Peter 3 21 says, baptism doth also now save us. I brought up 1 Peter 3 21 to a a denominational pastor, 21, 2, 3 years ago. This man was probably as older, older than I am right now. He was the pastor of a church. I brought up 1 Peter 3.21. The Bible says baptism now saves us. You know what he said to me? Because we didn't have our Bibles right there and open. He goes, the Bible doesn't say that. Very interesting. It, it says it right there. The like figure wherein to baptism doth also now Save us. If a church today teaches that our sins are forgiven and that we are in Christ and that we are saved before we are baptized, is that church upholding the word of God and hearing the apostles' teachings? Long question, isn't it? The answer has to be no. If I believe the apostles who are speaking Jesus' words if I believe them, I have to say, I don't say it with arrogance. I just say it because I love the truth. I have to say they are not of God, no matter how sincere they may be. Now, does that mean there might not be some individuals in there who studied the word of God, found it themselves and were baptized for the remission of their sins, even though their church didn't teach that? And they may be on a journey getting closer to God. and God may be giving them grace and bearing with them as they grow out of that. Sure. But as an institution, as a body, and I'm selecting a place that I'm going to worship and I'm going to take the Lord's Supper, if they're even taking it every Sunday, which almost probably aren't, is that a group that I have any reason to believe is of God? No, and I have every reason to believe they're not. What did Jesus say about teaching as doctrines the commandments of men? To say this prayer, just believe and you'll be saved. We do the Lord's Supper every quarter, every, you know, twice a year. I was just being told about a congregation. Uh, it's in, well, it's a congregation among us. Uh, they just recently had a, a woman contact them. And uh, she'd been studying the scriptures. And she'd been taught, you know, in her previous experiences that you don't need to be baptized. You know, you just, just believe and you're saved. And she's reading the Bible. And she says, that's not what it says. And she was calling around to churches, trying to find a church. And this is in a metropolitan area. She's calling around to churches, trying to find a church that will baptize her. And you know what answer she was getting? Well, we won't be doing any of that till October. Uh, no, we can't baptize you till like, it may even have been a later month mentioned. Because, of course, baptism doesn't have anything to do with salvation. And so they set up these times. I've gone to websites. There's a big church down in the Kansas City area, a church down there. Gone to the website, you know, and they think, oh, you can sign up to be baptized at their designated baptismal times. Just 
Jesus said in Matthew 59 that if you teach as doctrines the commandments of men, what does he say about your worship? In vain. What's the word vain mean? Useless, worthless. Doctrine matters. John 4, 24. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit. So you gotta have, you gotta be sincere, you gotta be engaged, going through the motions will never please God. You've gotta be sincere and engaged, but is that enough? No, they that worship me must worship, those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So I have a little Bible study I put together, and that's what I've been drawing on for this lesson. And here's the final question in the Bible study, based on all the stuff we've been looking at. One of those long questions. But I'd like to hear your answer. In light of what we have learned, number one, that the church must uphold the word of God and hear the apostles' teachings. Number two, that many churches do not do this. Number three, that teaching the commandments of men as if they were the doctrine of God will cause our worship to be in vain. And number four, that our worship must be in spirit and in truth. In light of those realities that the word of God taught us, will worshiping with just any church please God? We can't just say, well, I know the truth, and you know, I know the truth, and that's enough. We've got to know the truth, and we've got to act on it. So as I close, the church upholds the truth, and what was it built on? foundation of the apostles and prophets. And what was it revealed to the apostles? All truth. So the church is built to uphold the truth and it's built upon the truth. It's upheld by the truth. Find the truth and you will find the church. Find the truth and you will find God. I'm thankful that This congregation exists. I'm thankful that there are so many congregations that are practicing the truth. And I don't know everybody here. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you are seeking to serve Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and you have not identified with and entered into the the, the body through baptism and started working among a congregation that teaches the things we've been talking about today, I urge you in the name of Jesus Christ, do so. Become a part of the one true church of God.